Welcome to Transformative Talk. Each episode is hosted by a different graduate student in Dr. Haddad's courses at the University of Texas in San Antonio. Join us today as we explore how educators can use critical social theories to transform themselves and their classrooms. Educators can get real and share real-life experiences, near misses, and big little wins. This is Amanda Martinez and Aaron Patino, your host for this episode of Transformative Talk. In this episode, we are going to talk about queer theory, a, a subject that has, that has become more popular recently in modern times and was initially in the beginning, it was not that popular, or rather, it was hard to define because of all the, because it, it's an intersectional topic. It can intersect with a lot of different contexts like feminism, sexual studies, movements started by by people of color or ethnicities, but it's becoming more of a hot topic in in today's society where where things are becoming more accepted. Despite everything, I'd say that we are becoming more accepting and queer theory is here to address that. And so I think that in society where you can't go too far without hearing the, the acronym, the LGBTQ. And, um, and that's most of the time what comes to mind when people are, are discussing queer theory. But there's another letter on it that gets added that sometimes people, if you don't identify as one of those LGBTQ letters, people think that, oh, that's not really for me. But the letter A is a really important one. And, um, and that stands for an ally. An ally, yeah, that's someone who is a supportive, supportive of the LGBT community. Community, they might not be part of the community, but they support them. Like they can support gay rights, gay marriage. Like that's that's an ally, or even someone who merely says that's not cool. Like be, like they're people like us. Like anyone who supports or takes a stand against like homophobia, which is, you know, the the fear or irrational hatred of, of people who are homosexual, like that's an ally, which. And I think, and I think that um, people saying that, oh, I don't identify with those letters because um, I'm not one of those. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about queer theory. And that's probably the first thing that has to be addressed. Um, and I think that if people are able to identify as an ally, then it kind of like sets the whole conversation in a different mindset. Um, yeah. I, I want to just kind of talk a little bit about why it's important for not just teachers, but for everybody to identify as an ally. And uh, Amanda, if you want to go ahead and start off. Um, yeah, being an ally, like, it is very important because, well, as far as we know, like, the society we live in is still in favor of people who are heterosexual, male, and white but being an ally we can not necessarily give like lgbt people like their rights but we can definitely like as allies when our voices are heard like it can it can reach out to several people and potentially change their minds and give these people that we are fighting for the people we're allies towards like a voice like let them be heard and let them be accepted like, I'm not saying we're giving it to them. I'm just saying that as allies, it's, it's our duty almost. Like, we should, like, support our people, support our LGBT peers because they matter. Right, and I'm, and I'm glad you used that word duty because when you start thinking about a teacher's role in society, um, their duty is to teach students how to become a member of society. And if they are constantly being excluded from society, then they don't know how to participate in unison with one. So it's really important for teachers to really instill in their students a sense of belonging. And one of the senses of belonging that's most critical, especially to young students who are having identity issues, is as an ally. So creating that safe space, which we're gonna talk about in one of the articles that comes up in just a second, but creating that safe space and a place where your voice can be heard is really critical in a classroom. And as teachers, that's a responsibility we cannot take lightly. Exactly. 
I'm not a teacher yet, but that's my main goal. You know, something I would actually like to share is that um, regarding queer theory and seeing this show up more in school is actually, it's not uncommon, you know, because there's a lot of, there's a, a variety of different school, different students in school, like, no one's the same, like, even if they follow all the same cliques, no one's really the same, and for the most part, some LGBT, LGBT students tend to be considered, you know, like, sometimes they're outcasted or cast aside because, you know, in this heteronormative society that we live in, like, many students who are gay or don't conform to their gender get bullied. I will mention that a lot, but I can't stress how how true that is because it, it still happens. It's it's 2020 and that's still happening because some people are still not okay with the fact that some of these students are different. But interestingly, when I was in high school, that was not the case. I uh, I met quite a few students who I didn't even know, know were gay or I figured it out on my own because there were quite a few same-sex couples. At first I thought it was I was surprised because I had never seen that before, not in person, but it wasn't frowned upon. I didn't see, as far as I was concerned, I didn't see them getting bullied or bothered for it. And one of my dear friends was, I didn't even know she was gay until she came out to the classroom during my junior year and everybody accepted her. They thought, that's great, that's cool, that thank you for sharing that with us. And I was amazed and I was one of those students who said thank you for sharing that with us. That felt like an oddly personal moment. And and then in following senior year, she was able to go to the prom with her girlfriend and it was beautiful. Everybody, they treated her like she was an equal to them. Like they didn't say anything bad to her just because she was gay. They didn't bully her. They didn't reject her. They just accepted her. And that was, I thought that was incredible. And I accepted her from the beginning. She was my dear friend and I was, I was touched that she, that I was one of the few in her class that she felt that comfortable coming out to. And that's just something that I wish would be the case with every school, like where students feel that they can do that, that they can come out and express themselves without fear of judgment because that's the goal. I mean, to make schools a lot safer for these LGBT students to let them be who they are and not judge them and accept them because they're they're students like like everyone else. I mean, of course, you know, every student is different, but what the goal of a school should be to accept and affirm every student's identity and their sexual orientation and never make them feel cast out. To me, that is the ultimate goal. And to me, that's why queer theory exists, because we need to get a good look at all these different identities and, and genders or chosen genders and sexual orientations so that way we can we can know how to approach these students and make them feel welcome and accepted by us. Okay. So one of the articles that we were reading was by Elizabeth Meyer and it came out in 2007. And one of the main ideas that came out of it was this idea of systematic exclusion. And it's really important for the, the topic that we're having here. So I'm gonna go to the definition of it. Um, according to Meyer, the systematic exclusion is the process whereby positive role models messages and images about lesbian, gay, and bisexual people are publicly silenced in schools. And schools go to great lengths to forbid expressions of sexuality by both children and teachers. You know, that's true. Because um, 
as well in schools like there's a term has come up like to describe how how everything is normal they call like heterosexual being heterosexual is normal like a woman liking a man is normal a man liking women is normal like heterosexuality that's normal like and that breeds the new term heteronormativity where it's normal to be heterosexual and by being heterosexual you also follow the traditional gender roles like if you're a woman like you should be feminine you gotta wear like look pretty or like do things that most like most women would do or like what they deem is normal for women to do and or what's normal for a man to do like a man should be masculine or a man should not show their emotions and be manly like all that stuff that's based that's kind of not to sound opinionated but that's kind of nonsense because heteronormativity like if by making that the norm it just it breeds homophobia or a woman like you can't be gay or like if you're gay that's not normal or if you're if you don't conform to your biolog like to the gender that you were assigned at if you don't conform to those to that gender or the traditional gender roles then that makes you not normal and that encourages homophobia which is it's sad it's it's a huge pro it's becoming a big problem in school since despite the fact that we live in 2020 it's still like kids are still bullying other kids with because they're not hetero heterosexual or don't conform to their don't conform to the traditional gender roles I, I definitely agree with you. Um, I think that the the binary opposition of you know heteronormal whatever is normal for heterosexuals and then homosexuals that's problematic with students and kids are or students I shouldn't say kids students are caught up in the middle of that. But another thing that comes up with systematic exclusion is the idea that schools are purposely silencing positive role models that come from um, a homosexual background. And um, in this article, I kind of, I disagree with that. And I've, I've got to say that um, I disagree be mostly because I'm, I'm an English teacher and we read a lot of literature and we definitely don't shy away from the works of homosexual writers. Um, I teach high school. And so it's very common for us to talk at length about Langston Hughes and how his background as a homosexual helps to understand, it helps us to understand why he's writing about certain issues. Not only was he African-American, but he's coming from another place of being an other. And that was really, um, that, that's something we don't shy away from at schools. And, you know, there's other writers that we, that we also talk about. In American literature, we talk about Walt Whitman a lot. And more recently, when we start getting into more current writers, Sandra Cisneros, um, who is openly uh, lesbian, also we, th those are discussions that we have in the classroom. So I don't feel that I'm on board with what Elizabeth Meyer was saying in the article about systematic exclusion, but I also know that that's coming from an English teacher's perspective. Uh, Amanda, what do you think in other, in your experience, um, is it, are, they, are those topics kind of shied away from outside of English classes? You know, that's kind of a difficult question because as someone who's gonna also be an English teacher, I know that what you're saying is true. Like, I certainly don't plan to shy away from any LGBT author or writer or artist, but I guess it would be a little more difficult in other subjects, like in history, for example, which is probably the closest relative to English teach to English. Like, most I of totally agree. I mean, well, I guess, you know, like they didn't really ask about the sexual orientations of certain political historical figures, but I think maybe like there could be made more of an effort into highlighting some important political figures in history, but I'm not so certain about math or science because that's a, it's a little difficult to integrate LGBT studies in, in those subjects. However, in art, like, you know, like extracurricular studies, like with, like for art or even band, like I was a band student in middle school and 
like I know for certain that they're most of the time like artists. It tends to be artists who are like L of LGBT or gay or lesbian. Like, but lately I can say that I don't think they're being very excluded. I just think it's a little difficult to include like some of that some of that topic in certain subjects. Yeah, so teachers have that responsibility again of not just uh, creating a place where students feel comfortable talking about those things, but also where it's natural and it's not forced into the curriculum. It's um, it's that idea of a of a hidden curriculum not being so hidden. Exactly. We will be back after the break to queer theory. Welcome back to this week's transformative talk on queer theory. My name is Aaron. And I am Amanda Martinez, your host. And for this section, we are going to be talking about gender polarization and creating schools that value sexual diversity. So this is another article now. from Elizabeth Meyer, um, written two years later. So the first one was 2007. This is from 2009. So her perspective is very much similar. It's a little bit different though. Yeah, if it, yeah, this one is, this one discusses sexual diversity, which is, I wouldn't say relatively new term, but it's becoming more, not a hot topic, but something that's more of a consideration, especially in schools by being more inclusive and inviting and letting more students in with different sexual identities that aren't just heterosexual. Like it's basically, like enlightening the, the schools and the teachers and educators like of all these different identities that some may identify as rather than just being straight because let's face it like while straight students definitely still exist more students that are not straight are definitely becoming more prevalent nowadays because it's becoming a little bit more okay yeah in some ways it you know, society is regressing pretty quickly on this in some ways, not always, but uh, I think that, yeah, the terms are starting to be, we're more familiar with them now. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, in, in the article, there is um, something interesting, I think is very interesting. Um, it's the heterosexual questionnaire. And this was created in 1977. And it's a questionnaire that has been used to help students explore heterosexual privilege. And um, there's six questions to it. And I'd like to go ahead and just kind of, in this conversation here, talk about these kinds of answers that we have here. So I'll start off uh, asking the first question to you, Amanda, and we'll both take turns on this. Uh, so question number one of the heterosexual questionnaire, what do you think caused your heterosexuality? I don't know, I guess. I guess I just growing up like there were boys in my class and I thought hey they don't have they don't have long hair like I do or like they don't look they don't have soft they don't look soft like I do and then I would watch TV and I saw Orlando Bloom and I'm like oh my sister said he's cute and I'm like yeah he is cute <laughs> and then I saw these other boys and I'm like they're cute too I think that's I think that's where it all where it all started. I discovered, oh my God, I'm heterosexual. <laughs> what about you, Aaron? What do you think caused um, your heterosexuality? Well, I don't, I don't remember this specifically, but I do remember other people in my family talking about it. I had a babysitter and her name was Dada. And um, Dada, she was very well endowed. And everybody, <sighs> ever, whenever we're around, they always remind me of this and they say, they said, yeah, Aaron, you used to, used to really like Dada. And he, he, they would say, you liked her big muscles, her big muscles. And I was like, okay. So I must have been like maybe, I don't know, three or four. And I was already noticing like muscles. So I guess that's kind of the start of it. I don't remember it. I just remember other people telling me about it. But I guess that's, I guess it started there. I don't know. <laughs> kind of strange. Wow. <laughs> That's a, that's quite an awakening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I remembered more about it. I just remember people telling me about it. That's all. 
<laughs> wow. Well, we discovered that part about ourselves. Yeah. Uh, question two. Um, when and how did you first decide you were heterosexual? Similar question, but it's a little bit more uh, in-depth on that one. Yeah. You know, going back to when I thought Orlando Bloom was cute, I got older. And, you know, when when girls get older, they start, you know, thinking things and noticing that guys <laughs> and other girls, for, math, for that matter, are different. And in middle school, honestly, it was a blur for me. I really don't remember much. I just remember remember thinking, oh, my body's changing. Oh, these girls, why do they look better than me? And then came gym class where, you know, we, I wouldn't say we saw a lot of skin, but we saw a little bit more skin, including from the athletic boys. Frankly, not one of them was cute, but, <laughs> I, but some of them had faces that I thought, oh, I could, I wouldn't mind touching their cheeks. Like they look kind of cool. I thought, yeah, I like the way the guys look because they make me feel less slightly less insecure than the prettier girls do so in middle school but especially in high school because I started seeing a lot of tv shows about high school like girls crushing on boys and I thought oh I like some boys I think they're cute that must mean I have to be heterosexual so from then on out I thought yeah I'm heterosexual yeah I I don't remember ever thinking as a kid like oh yeah I I like girls therefore I'm I'm heterosexual I do remember um, really wanting, it was more of a competition, wanting to be with boyfriend, girlfriend, like with this one girl in class. But it was more like me wanting to be with her because another friend of mine wanted to be with her and it was a competition thing. And it was, it was stupid, but I mean, we're, it's elementary, but it was one of those things where when it was Christmas time or Valentine's and you know, you would give uh, gifts exchanges like that, and you would think, oh, okay, yeah, we're that's that's my girlfriend, and I'm I'm her boyfriend, and things like that. And but it wasn't serious; it was just like pretend playing. But entry, maybe I would say maybe that was third grade, maybe fourth grade around that, probably third grade. <laughs> I don't know. What makes sense? Yeah. Uh, number three, is it possible that your heterosexuality is just a phase you may grow out of? What do you think you about You know what? That's a good question. I kind of do have to think about it. <laughs> because, you know, elementary and middle school and high school, that's where I thought I gotta be, I have to be heterosexual because I, I think the boys are cute. But in high school, like near the end of it, since the girls were becoming a little, well, more fuller figured, I guess you can say. And uh, then I went to community college and I just, you know, something in my mind started opening up and I thought, you know, these girls are really pretty. And then I started paying more attention to other girls like on, on TV, like that Scarlett Johansson. And I'm like, oh my goodness, her dress is doing something different. <laughs> And a lot of people, Amanda, just saying, so. <laughs> it is Scarlett Johansson, Aaron. Yes, yes. The, she's lovely. Um, yeah, I, I think that question, you know, I think if you, if you flipped it the other way around, and you, instead of, and you replaced um, heterosexuality with the word homosexuality, I think that's the point of the question. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but if it reads, is it possible that you, that your homosexuality is a phase you may grow out of? I think a lot of students that have gender issues or, or some, um, some, some identity issues, they may be asked that question a lot. And I think phrasing it in this way with heterosexuality replacing homosexuality, I think that's there to kind of like point out that that's a ridiculous kind of question to be asking somebody who's just figuring things out. Yeah, I, it, it is kind of a silly question. I mean, you know, Sometimes this isn't, this isn't a phase. I mean, maybe for some rare cases it can be, but for the most part, it's not a phase. I don't think so. Right. Um, uh, there's uh, three more questions. 
<clears throat> Number four, if heterosexuality is normal, why are so many mental patients heterosexual? I'm going to read that again. If heterosexuality is normal, why are so many mental patients heterosexual? Hmm. Now that is a good question because there are quite a few mental patients that are heterosexual, although not a lot, but yeah, I, some are. We don't always know the full, we don't know all these mental patients, like we don't know their background, but for the most part, I can't say I know, aside from maybe, maybe issues or maybe they're like, maybe something's going through their minds, like, is this right? Or like, yeah. Really, me? Yeah, I I'm think gonna... I, would, I would probably, if I were taking this questionnaire in school, I would probably put a big question mark about that and just kind of skip that one. I don't know. I'm not sure what to think about that one. Maybe we'll get some yeah. comments from other people and see what they think about that question. It's number four on the heterosexual questionnaire. Number five, the great majority of child molesters are heterosexual males. Do you consider it safe? to expose your children to heterosexual teachers? <laughs> Not all the time, to be honest. Because, you know, some... I've heard some cases where some heterosexual teachers are freaks. Or at least, like, gross. <laughs> I mean, have you heard some cases about some teachers in, in Texas? Like, this this one adult lady was hitting on her on her male students. I'm like, she's heterosexual, but she's also just gross. Yeah, and I don't so, think it's just Texas, though. I think that's happening in other places, too. Um, yeah, for sure. But, uh, but yeah, I think, um, I, I think again, when you look at the, 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 the reverse of that question, um, it kind of makes you think that a lot of people with um, a homosexual orientation, they get posed this question as if it's something like criminal. And, and I believe if I'm correct on this, I believe that's the point of this questionnaire here, that we don't ask these questions of heterosexuals, but we have no problem asking them of homosexuals. Yeah, I, you know, you actually got a point, because I watch a lot of TV, and while I, some of it is anachronistic and probably not accurate, this one show was actually pretty accurate, where it took place in like the 50s, and back then, homosexuality was like deemed a mental illness like and uh this one teacher who was portrayed as a lesbian like she was threatened like if you like I'll tell the school because she was a teacher that you're a gay woman and that would have automatically gotten her fired and probably she probably never would have taught again and I can't help but think that must have been the case for other people back then who were gay and had to keep it a secret because for some reason even Back then, like 20 years ago, I guess, like being homosexual was just, like you said, they deemed it as criminal or like something, like something was wrong with them. Right, right. Um, and then the last question here, it goes on, this is number six. Would you want your children to be heterosexual knowing the problems they would face, such as heartbreak, disease, and divorce? That question gives me an eye roll because I'm pretty sure heterosexual, homosexual, transsexual, heartbreak, disease, and divorce are inevitable no matter what orientation you are. Yes. At least and that's I, what I think. Well, I, and, I, and I, think, I think that your eye roll, which, you know, you guys can't see, but I saw it. I think the eye roll, <laughs> one of the main points of why this questionnaire is out there, it's to make us pause and reflect, I believe, now that I've actually answered the questions out loud, not just reading them, I feel like this, this questionnaire is meant to make us reflect on how ridiculous some of the questions and some of the line of thinking that is pushed onto people with identity, um, gender identity issues. And so um, yeah. maybe this is an exercise that's an eye-opening exercise and maybe not really meant for actual like data to record, but just to get you to to think about this is these are the kind of questions that we ask people when we feel um, the proverbial we when we feel that something might be wrong with them. So we ask them questions like this 
to make them think about it. But the questions are, they're skewed, you know, they're, and, and if you were having uh, yeah. issues or gender identity issues, then these questions are not helpful. And, you know, I'd be curious to see what other people think about, or, or to find out more about what other people say about this questionnaire and how it's received. You know, is it tongue in cheek or is it something more substantial? Yeah, I agree. Give, give the people who are heterosexual like uh, and I are like on the outside looking in and realize, yeah, this is dumb. Why are we asking them this? Right. It really is dumb. So, um, so yeah, so back-to-back -back articles from Elizabeth Meyer. That one had the, the questionnaire in there. Definitely worth checking that one out. That one was called Creating Schools That Value Sexual Diversity. Good read. The next topic we are going to be discussing is gender dysphoria after reading the article Gender Variance and Dysphoria in Children and Adolescents. Because that is also an issue, but it's more of an emotional and psychological issue that's becoming, that we are seeing more in schools. Me personally, I haven't seen that yet because I'm not a teacher yet, but I've I've heard some stories and some issues from other other teachers talk who discuss that some of their students are going through a lot of emotional issues, especially regarding gender identity and dysphoria, which is distress, like caused by a person's I gender identity and their their change their biological bodies that are that are changing and it's basically like they're not happy with the changes and like it's it breeds a lot of like self-esteem issues and anxiety. Yeah, and, and I want to and I want to talk a little bit about that um, before we go on further because um, I do have um, I've been a classroom teacher um, for over seventeen years, and I'm not I'm not familiar with the term gender dysphoria. Um, do you want to uh, talk a little bit about that and, and what you took out of that from the from the reading a little bit, Amanda? Before we start going into examples of it. Oh, yes, I do. Um, gender dysphoria, it's, um, it's becoming a little bit more of a known term, and a, it can describe, like, a person, like, who, a person who's, who looks at their body and is experiencing all these different emotions that are mostly stressful, because when they have a different identity, like, maybe, like, hypothetically a young a person who identifies as a female was born as a male but as their body changes or when they look at their body and see like if they don't like it because their body doesn't fit with how they identify and um it just creates a lot of it makes them feel bad makes them feel worthless maybe even ugly and uh, the same can be said for maybe a young, a person who identifies as a male but is, was born a female, or even, even a person who identifies as neither gender, like the non-binary, which is a, also a new term, but gender dysphoria overall is not, it's, I don't want to put it in simple terms like where you're not happy with your body because it's a lot more complex than that because, um, it has a lot to do with identity. Like I don't look the way I feel on the inside and it's. Eh. Right. I, I, I think I mean, that's a good way to describe it because I know that in my experience from classrooms, we see a lot of body image issues, period. Um, they may not necessarily be related to gender issues, but we have a lot of people that are growing up, like you said, and they're not comfortable where they're at or they feel like they should be somewhere else physically or at another level and they're not there. And I think that students struggle with that a lot, but related to, but also on top of that would be the issue about, well, how do I identify gender wise? So you've got your, your own body issues that a lot of people have to deal with and you've got gender issues on top of that. And that makes it really uh, complicated. And so the article does talk about some of the behaviors that we start to see in the classroom where students start to distance themselves. Um, they start to push away, like they don't belong. And so you start seeing problems like um, 
like truancy problems or complete just um, apathy about grades. And you start noticing those kind of things. And what's interesting is that as a high school teacher, I start seeing those things and I never thought about putting gender dysphoria to that line of thinking about what might be causing it. Yeah, you know, sometimes even gender dysphoria can be so intense that some of these students can even like resort to unhealthy behaviors like self-harm, like that's a, a bit of a scarier thing to think about, but it's present in quite a few students who are experiencing gender dysphoria. And uh, and you mentioned that they distance themselves, which can be another unhealthy thing to indulge in. And that is present in quite a few who are experiencing that because, you know, it's it's a complicated mix of emotions. Maybe they don't know how to talk about it or or like maybe they're afraid. Maybe they feel because they already feel like they're not normal and sometimes bullying can also be a factor to that dysphoria like makes them feel even worse about themselves and just it's hard it's really hard. i think i think that definitely um teachers whether you whether you teach elementary middle school or high school you need to be aware of like some of the things that the students are going through um particularly in middle school i feel I, that's not to just that's not to exclude anything that elementary teachers might start noticing. But I think that especially at the middle school level where kids are already feeling like they need to be isolated. And I think that, that that's something that teachers have to be aware of. What's your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, middle school, I wouldn't say it's the worst time of a student's life, but that's when in, in elementary school, things were a little bit more innocent. Like everyone was mostly friends with each other. But come middle school, like that's when the pack starts separating into their own little groups. And then on top of that was when you're, you reach a certain age where your body starts to change and puberty comes in full blossom. And then it makes you, makes it so awkward with your body going through changes, like whether it's like physically or emotionally. And that's usually where it, it starts. For some cases, it's earlier than others, but, but for the most part, middle school is and is where puberty tends to begin and things become just a lot harder to discuss a lot harder to open up and a lot harder to feel good about yourself because you're you're changing going through all these changes yeah when before i started teaching high school um, i actually taught middle school i taught eighth grade for three years and in that time i noticed that in the classroom you know, a lot of times it's not uncommon to have students get frustrated and cry in class, whether it's grades or it's something going on at home, but it comes out in the classroom. But in that time that I was teaching eighth grade middle school, I had more boys crying in class um, and, and not crying because of like sadness, but like pent up anger and frustration. And it comes out and, and I know everybody can relate to this. You get so frustrated and you don't know, you don't know how to let it out. And it comes out in like tears and sobbing. That happened more often in eighth grade um, middle school with boys than any other grade level that I've taught. And I think going to what you were saying, that a lot of it has to do with all these changes, especially the hormonal changes. They're happening so rapidly and so quickly. And I don't think that boys or girls really they don't have the time to adjust to how they're feeling about anything. And so any slight misstep that they make, a mistake that they're conscious of, results in that aggression and tears and frustration. And, and that's not even talking about like gender dysphoria. That's just, that's just what their bodies are going through like hormonally. Um, and, and so you're, you're talking about go, becoming a teacher. Have you thought about what grade level you'd like to teach or what you prefer? I was, I was going to go into the route for like fourth grade to eighth grade because I convinced myself that between that gap, I can handle students who can, I can understand more. And 
middle school, like since I can speak from experience that it's a, it's the most, well, considered one of the most difficult times that I can hopefully, I can see, like, I think I, I like to think I have a pretty good eye at noticing when something is wrong. And because I know gender dysphoria and other emotional and psychological issues regarding puberty or bullying or, is such a, a big issue that's more present in middle school, surprisingly, that uh, that's where, that's where I would like to go, like in middle school and maybe be one of those understanding ears. And so, so let me, yeah, let me throw this out at you. Let's say that you are teaching in middle school and you see a kid, a boy, who's really frustrated and starts crying. And this happens a couple of times. If you start to see other kids picking on him or making fun of him because he cries, um, as a teacher, what kind of approach would you take to something like that? I know, I know that um, you haven't started teaching yet, but you know, after reading these kind of things, and what kind of approach would you take to somebody who uh, is getting picked on for crying, especially if they're a boy? Well, as a teacher, I know I need to be a little more professional. I can't just, well, of course I'm going to take a step in and the like, I feel like I would like get all the students to like, like, please stop. Like that's unacceptable. And I'll, I won't necessarily call them out, but I will say that uh, it's wrong. Like we can't, like, this is your classmate. He, de he doesn't deserve to be treated like this and showing emotions is okay. Like that kind of like, not necessarily motherly, but ultimately I will just want my class to get along and I don't want, I don't want any of my students to be made fun of for, for crying or showing emotions. So I guess I don't want to play mother hen because I know I have to be more professional than that, but I will definitely discourage bullying and I won't tolerate it. No, well, I, I, well, that, I think that's a, that's a great answer. But I think especially with grades four through eight, you're going to have to be a mother hen. I mean, so I, you know, like, I don't think you should shy away from that. In fact, the kids would probably love you for that. You know, that you'd, they'd be part of your, your rapport with them. Um, but that you touched upon something else is like, you started thinking about like, okay, well, what can you do in a classroom to kind of support those kids that are going through emotional times? But then also, what are we going to do in a classroom to support those kids that are going through um, gender dysphoria? and other issues related to their identity and um this is kind of a perfect segue your answer is a perfect because in the in the in the next um section we're going to talk about an article that talks about ways to make your classroom more supportive of lgbtq students oh yeah the article that i was referring to is called five things you can do to support your your lgbtq students and um, I think this is, I think this should be required reading for anybody going into teaching right now. Um, and so there's five points that we're going to talk about here in just a moment. Number one, post safe space signs. Ah, that's where you can, like, you can create a safe zone. That's the, the idea of that is creating a safe zone for your classmates by putting out stickers or posters on your classroom door, like to know that you're, you're LGBTQ friendly, like maybe a picture of the rainbow flag or even a pride, even a pride poster, like that's willing to challenge all the anti-LGBT language or harassment. I'm sure that by creating that kind of safe space, like the students will probably already get a little breath of relief and like, oh my, I can be like, it's okay. Like I'm okay in this class. Yeah, and I think that it's really important to think about what kind of culture your school has and how accepting they are. Um, oh. Because I would hate for someone to put a, a big banner or a big flag up in the room um, knowing that you're confident where you're at, but that may not be the place for it. But, um, but having some kind of awareness out there, depending on what school you're at, it might look it might look differently depending on what school you're at yeah it's a good idea um, you know give them a good environment the article also moves on to the second idea which is to start an lgbtq organization at your school um 
And Amanda, in talking to you before, you were saying that this is something that kind of like really struck a, a chord with you um, about starting an organization. Yeah, it's like, it'd be a dream come true because, well, I guess, you know, most of the time clubs are like, they say that they're inclusive, but I know that sometimes that's not always true because I don't, I can't think of any good examples right now, but, you know, even in clubs, kids are going to get bullied or heckled or harassed, but an LGBTQ organization, it would really make those students feel like included or like that they matter, that their voice matters, like, like they're accepted, like this kind of organization will really like, of course, I'm concerned about bullying, that's just going to exist no matter what, but I think having an organization like this at a school would really like showcase that the school is progressive and that these students are accepted and that they're going to be made to feel like they do matter because they do. Right. And the article does talk a little bit about like the GSAs, which are gay straight alliances that you can start up at your school. And um, so I think that's really important. Um, number three kind of goes along with number two. And it, number three is stand up against homophobia. And I think that two and three, they lend, they, they kind of lean on each other in that you may have a school where starting a, gray, a gay straight alliance may not be something that the kids would stand up for. However, most schools do have like a student council or a student class representative, uh, an organization like that. And you could have students through those councils that are already established have a place where they could speak up um, against homophobia or at least for awareness that's out there. So um, I think that two and three are important. Um, you know, some schools are just like you said before, some schools are going to be a little bit more progressive and other ones, not so much. So it's, it's good to try to use the organizations that are already existing to get the students' voices out. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, number four, um, you, you mentioned before going into uh, uh, English, uh, teaching English. And so number four kind of hits to what English teachers are. If you want to take that one. Oh, yeah. To integrate LGBTQ topics into the curriculum. That's, uh, that's definitely something I think would be, like, that would be a great thing to implement into like into the school. I mean, you know, you and I are both English teachers, so it's going to be a lot less complicated for us. Like we can introduce students to these LGBTQ authors, writers, or artists, or musicians. Like it's really not a problem for us, but at the same time, I think, I think it'll mean a lot to the students like to, like to see a, a figure or even a celebrity that's, you know, maybe they can identify with. Maybe they, like maybe they could be gay like they are or and um i remember i recall saying this that it's it's a little harder for the other subjects but i think it can be a slow and steady process where we gradually like integrate or mention more lgbtq topics in other subjects mm -hmm. yeah i agree we you know in in english we we it's a it's a liberal arts subject so we have a lot more freedom than say you know, some of the sciences may have. Um, so I agree with you, it's definitely a little bit easier for us. Um, and the fifth one, the fifth recommendation is, is pursue professional development. And um, I know that there's been a push in schools within the last three or four years to get everybody, as far as the teachers and the counselors and the nurses, to give them training so that schools can be called trauma-informed schools, where you have an awareness for the students' home lives, and they may be going through some really terrible uh, traumatic experiences and what to look for and what are some of the red flags. And I think that if we're looking at professional development, some of that trauma-informed uh, needs to be starting to teach, to teach teachers how to recognize some of the red flags that you may, um, you may um, start to see with kids that are going through gender identity issues. And so I think that 
the professional development is already there in place most of the time with teachers. They'll, t they'll tell you that there's probably too much professional development, especially at the beginning of the year. But if you have somebody who's going to say, this is going to help out um, our, our students with gender dysphoria, that might be a different way to approach and train faculty and all the staff uh, a little bit more uh, to be to be a little bit more prepared for some of the issues that they might be seeing and not just um, casting the kid off saying, oh, well, you're just upset, you're emotional, or this kid's just being a jerk because he doesn't like school. There's more to it than those kinds of things. And I think that uh, professional development will probably go a long way in helping us recognize those things. Yeah, because these some of these issues are, they're very specific. Some Some of the bullying is not just simple bullying. These students are going through very specific things and having the right professionals to help them with those things will I think will really go a long way and actually and help a student actually continue to trek on through school. Yes and so for that reason in the comments of this podcast I'm going to actually put a link to this article five things you can do to support your LGBTQ students. I'm going to put it on there and um, I would like for those of you that are listening to read the article and then put your comments on there about things that you can do to extend some of the ideas here because the whole idea is that this an article like this is it's just a springboard for other ideas that can be coming your way and get that conversation started with peers and people that are involved in the teaching field so um, definitely look out for that in the comments the link for it there um, well Amanda I think this yeah, I think that's all for this episode. Yeah, this has been fun. Yeah, and thank you all so much for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you've discovered our show. That's all for now, but I'll see you in the next episode of the Transformative Talk. Bye. Bye. <laughs>